we digitized the seven signatories' papers and made them freely available uh, to view anywhere in the world. And we captured the contemporary digital memory, what's happening this year um, with our web archiving program. But it is through this series of interviews that we particularly wanted to facilitate a very reflective discussion about the proclamation and its relevance to modern Ireland. We're very honoured to have Dr. John Bowman and Professor Garrett Atuhi here tonight. Garrett is Professor em Emeritus in History and a former Vice President of MUI Galway. And I think the busy room here tonight speaks to the high level of interest in this discussion. I'm really looking forward to it. We're recording the interview, so we'll, we'll be broadcast at a um, podcast at a later date. So I'd ask you now just to note the emergency exits and to turn your, your phone to silent. It's my pleasure now to hand over to John. John Bowman is, of course, a renowned historian and broadcaster, and his latest book, Ireland, the Autobiography, is just recently launched. Thank you, John. Um, I would say just before we start, and I'll preface all of these interviews with this comment, that this is, the agenda here is the 1916 proclamation. It's just that because we had such a, a diverse range of, of people commenting on it, that there was always the temptation that people would think, well, this is a good moment to talk to Dermot Martin about Maynooth or to talk to Edna O'Brien about her latest memoir or whatever. But we're here to talk about the 1916 uh, proclamation and its text and so on. So I will welcome questions also at the at towards the end of our conversation. And I would ask you also to give us your name and organization, if any, or your particular interest, if any, when you ask the question, so that we can recognize the spin, if any. <laughs> now, it's great pleasure to welcome Garoldo Tuhi. He's Professor Emeritus in History at MUI Galway. And he's former Dean of Arts and Vice President of that university. He was appointed to the Council of State by the President of Ireland, uh, Michael D. Higgins, in 2012. He's a graduate of MUI and Cambridge, and he's written with originality about many, many aspects of modern Irish history, and it is lectures, journalism, and broadcasting. He's also recognized as among our leading public intellectuals. So it's a real pleasure, uh, Garod, to have you here. And can I perhaps begin by inviting you to look at the very text of the, um, of the proclamation. First of all, and given your own uh, interest, is it, what, I what is your view of the fact that there is, that none of it, except for the opening words and the title, is in Irish? Well, it is something that is remarked upon, given uh, at least some of the signatories had spent a considerable part of their lives as cultural activists in the Gaelic League um, and had not, as it were, renounced that enthusiasm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the immediacy of the proclamation, the proclamation was for a particular audience and for now. It was to, it was to make a maximum impact as proclamations are, pro all proclamations are essentially formal documents uh, in order to, to, to assert authority. And the citizenry, both in Dublin, the thousand or whatever number of copies were done, 2,000, it varies the estimates. They were for a particular audience. It was probably difficult enough for the audience that actually heard Pierce re reach out outside of GPO <coughs> to, to, to grasp the significance of what was going on or the references to it in English. But it is the case also, I think, 
it from the point of view of Pierce, because it's more than simply the proclamation being overwhelmingly the text in English. Apart from, interestingly, that heading, Publus Neherum, which itself <coughs> is quite interesting, because uh, the, the, the word Publus is coined for that document and was to lead to all manner of, of unease later when the question of was there a Gaelic word for Publus and what did it mean and how did it translate. Which but Lloyd George played Lloyd George, yeah, he did much, yeah. much, much more so later, yeah, that yeah. Stairs thought yeah. a free state. Free state. Uh, but Liam de Quer's excavations, uh, the, the contemporary dictionaries, uh, Deneen and O'Neill Lane and so on, did not have Publus that it is written there and uh, it didn't come in until later. But to return to the point that apart from the actual text, Pierce signed his own name in English. Um, and that was itself quite interesting because it is probably the case that in the last few years, the years when militancy and militarism began to completely engross the public space after the volunteering after 1913, and Pierce himself moves towards the revolutionary separatist physical force side, it is probably the case that Pierce's own orientation saw the language enthusiasm phase and the Gaelic revival phase as something which was necessary and was, if not complete, at least now part while the wider evangelism for separatism, for republican separatism needed to proceed. And you get that in the sovereign uh, people and you get it in the later writings and you get it in his rhetoric. And even Mahdiarmada, who signed it in Irish, because he had a Gaelic league background as well, and then in Cam, the two who did, Mahdiarmada also was devoting those final years leading up to the, the Rising to the, the real politics of revolution as distinct from the cultural politics of language revival. So it may well be that apart from the practical issue of getting maximum impact from a document that was meant to, 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 to rouse the population who were overwhelmingly Anglophone, there is probably the idea also that by the time some of those leaders, Pierce in particular, had moved into this final phase, um, the immediacy of getting the Republic, having the rebellion, uh, the physical sacrifice thing, had eclipsed, to a degree at least, the language issue. And on another practical level, there was a printing issue, wasn't there? Because most texts in Irish at that time were using the Gaelic uh, letter sets. Mm. There would have been that, and in fact, what is interesting is that even the texts as printed did not have the Sheena Fada on the few, <laughs> the few things that were required. Yeah. Yeah, but I rather suspect that that was less an impediment than the other issues. Indeed. Um, so Pierce was switching, you would say then, from a cultural agenda towards a, a separatist, a kind of more, his journalism reflects this too. It does, it does. Pamphlet, and and yeah. even though, and I think that the trip to America as well, um, the trip to America, though it was to raise money for St. Enders, and he did intend returning to raise further money, and his family were pressing him to get as much as he could because they, they, they were financially strapped for running the school. Uh, but he himself became very intoxicated with the new range of contacts among the Fenian separatists that he met on the far side. Uh, and you can see him becoming more and more, uh, more and more preoccupied, uh, preoccupied with the separatist issue, with the preparing for revolution, preparing for rebellion. And even the educational agenda with the cultural politics it's not that they, that they are seen as unworthy, but they're crowded out by the pressing need to get things done for his own reputation when you run through to the Donovan Rotha. Now, he did make the Donovan Rotha part, the, the earlier part of that speech had was in Irish, but the bulk of it was in English. 
And when you consider that his speech in O'Connell Street for Home Rule in 1812 was in Irish, you, you can see the journey. Yeah. Hmm. I'll, I'll take you through some of the hmm. texts. Uh, on O'Donovan Russell, for instance, um, having organized, and this is part of the, yeah. of the uh, proclamation, having organized and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary organization, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and through her open military organization, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army, having patiently perfected her discipline, having resolutely waited for the right moment to reveal itself, she now seizes that moment. Now, that really is a follow-on from the O'Donovan Russell graveside speech. It is. Isn't it? It, it just follows through. It does, but, uh, but it puts a very coherent uh, shape on something that wasn't anything like as well planned. Uh, after all, the, the dates of the rising itself had, had to be revised several times. The perfecting of discipline, uh, yes, uh, but on the other hand, uh, marching on the streets in Patrick's Day and all the rest of it is not exactly the sign of uh, concealment. <laughs> it is the ineptitude of the, of the ca or not taking seriously the castle regime. The discipline part of it is probably over. But the castle regime by was was qu was quite um, was in some difficulty anyway. Well it was, but yeah. it, but the idea that they would take this as as being a portent of something serious and sinister is is what I'm driving at. But yeah. I I also think that uh, waiting for the moment to strike. These are all well-crafted phrases that indicate that this is a very deliberate. By the time they signed off on the text, the final signing off on it, which was Easter Sunday morning, they knew of the debacle of the awed and the armed. They knew just what the impact of MacNeil's countermanding order was. They knew that the, the, the multiple cock-ups and misunderstandings and so on. Uh, and to say that it was ideally tuned by discipline and waiting for the moment to strike and so on, when they absolutely knew that this was the last despairing throw of the dice when everything had been had gone wrong, everything that could go wrong had gone wrong. But nonetheless, that as an opening paragraph, and remember, the, the, the voice that speaks those ones is Ireland. Mother, Mother, Ireland, Mother Ireland, our children, Mother Ireland yeah. calls her children yeah. uh, to the flag, called for, uh, in the name of the dead generation, of God and of the dead generation from which she receives the ancient nationhood. Uh, and what you get there is that Mother Ireland has effectively entrusted through the, the conspirators, has effectively planned well in secret. But you're right, the, the, the echoes of the Donovan Rossa thing, the leaders of this realm and so on, uh, they have done in, uh, there's a, there are plenty of echoes in it. But nonetheless, I do think that it's, 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 it's the way the rhetoric was to give a, a, a definitive authoritative um, reassuring sound that this had all been planned and that there wasn't, this wasn't a, a last minute thing. But then the mother figure to uh, mm. sort of capture and encapsulate mm. the nation wa was common to many nationalisms in Europe in it the 19th century, it wasn't it? Oh yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, and of and course it had an, a very strong pedigree here in Ireland very strong. Uh, through the, the representation of Ireland as Cardin uh, Zahir, Catherine O'Houlihan, Sheila uh, Nigaira uh, and Roisin Dove. There is a long, long one of, of, of Ireland's uh, personification, uh, and more particularly the suffering mother uh, whose children had been blackguarded or who were sent out and sent on the seas of the world and so on, but who eventually would, si would come into her own, as it were. Uh, and that, that, that notion of the mother who suffered uh, is, is very strong in it, and Ireland, it, the mother sum summons her children to strike for her freedom. And supported by mm. her exiled children, in an, again children, mm. yeah. in America mm. and by gallant allies in Europe. Mm. The Irish-American dimension was 
was very, very important. It was, it was. I mean, John Devoy had been the, the, the figure that, that kept, as it were, the agenda running. And indeed, even the, the immediate preparations, uh, statements, uh, entanglement with Germany via Devoy's contacts with the German in, in, in the United States. You, it is the case that the American support was important. The American support had been continuously important, at least since the time of the famine, for every aspect of Irish revivalism. Some of it strong, very strongly separatist, some of it culturally nationalist. Uh, the idea of the, the, the American tour for everybody, Douglas Hyde for money, uh, John Quinn, the patron waiting for mm. them, John Devoy and his network, and all the other factions, the Irish Wake Convention. America had been, it was important, and it was important psychologically as well as financially. Uh, these were the Irish exiles who had, in, in the face of all kind of adversity and prejudice, made it. Uh, these, were the, these were those that, that show that the Irish had no inherent failure of character to make it, that they got a fair chance. And therefore, from every point of view, they were the, sub they were the cousins who were the success stories, even when many of them were not particularly uh, successful. So that they were an important psychological, um, financial, and indeed political also because of the leverage they had and the growing leverage they had in domestic American politics. So that reference is, is certainly an acknowledgement of a reality, a political reality, uh, and a financial reality, and a, a psychological reality for some time. The gallant allies in Europe one was a little bit more problematic, obviously, because... Um, but it can, be, it can be looked at at oh face yes. value. Oh, yes, of course, of course. And it can be looked at from the, from the point of view of the British government or the Ulster Unionists well as, as the mm. ultimate treachery, mm. uh, <laughs> as it was. Uh, but certainly the gallant allies in Europe reference, by the time that, as I say, that they signed off on this, uh, the, the very, very limited assistance that was available from the German side was known to so them. Casement was oh, Casement yeah. was utterly disillusioned. Yeah. And Casement had started out with a strong German sympathy. He was impressed by German um, efficiency and so on in an early part of his career in the colonial service. He had a strong admiration for German character and their ability to get things done. But he was utterly disillusioned by his experience of the Twing and Froing. Apart from everything else, the way he was personally treated, but he recognised essentially how how limited and opportunist was the way the German uh, w w was the German attitude to what might be done or what could be afforded uh, by way of assistance to Ireland, and the, the, the shipment of arms itself was was fairly limited given what was required. But they they put it in because it was part of the plan. Uh, it was it was they they had it they had it, they had they had. Banked on German assistance, however limited it may be, and however aborted it may have been at the end, they were not going to remove it. But it was a very problematic reference in terms of its consequences for them. And what do we know about the provenance of the actual text? It's mainly uh, Pierce, isn't it? Yes, well, it, there were several drafts of it, or at least more particularly, it was drafted over a period of time, and then there were. The draft was signed off on, and then the final draft was signed off, it seems, on the morning itself. The, other <coughs> the, the, the first draft of it that was close to completion was a week before the rebellion, which would suggest that the German references and these may well have been in without knowledge of what was going to transpire uh, on the week. Uh, Pierce, the dominant, <coughs> excuse me, the dominant figure, uh, Connolly certainly, and McDonough probably, had a hand in revisions in it. Um, you can recognize some Connolly rhetoric in parts of it. 
you can certainly recognize the grandiloquence of Pierce in some of the phrasing. Uh, and the general shape of it does look more uh, Pierce of the late Pierce, Pierce of the sovereign people. Um, and I, I think Connolly and Pierce had at least a, a much closer understanding of each other in, the, in those final, in the final year or more even, probably since 1914, uh, than one might have imagined earlier. And I think there is another I issue as well about it. That when you talk about wh whether Pierce or, or Connolly you know, had the, the major hand in it, uh, Connolly in particular, because it was going to be printed in Liberty Hall, had a, a, a very direct responsibility for seeing to its dispersal throughout the city and beyond. Copies were sent and posted. Chaunty or Kelly posted several copies um, uh, to different people, including one to the Secretary of the Archbishop of Dublin. <laughs> it seems did not arrive. <laughs> but uh, there, was a, there was an anxiety, to, and Connolly to some degree had the responsibility that this was emanating from the press of the workers, it was emanating from Liberty Hall, and therefore Connolly had to be satisfied uh, that what, what he wanted to be in it. It's actually quite a modest document. I, I, I think when you look at it and you talk about uh, radical rhetoric and so on, I looked at the earlier proclamation of 1867, that the Fenians did in 1867. And uh, what is quite interesting in it is that they make it total separation of church and state. It states explicitly, which is not found in the proclamation of 1863. The proclamation uses some of the high rhetoric of the war period, gallant allies, august destiny. This is very much 1914-18 rhetoric about high callings to military valor, the valorization of sacrifice, the kind of feudal rhetoric uh, that you find at the time. You look at the proclamation of 1867, the Fenian one, and they're talking about republicans of the world unite. Uh, our fight is your fight. And it's very carries echo of the Communist Manifesto much more so than, than anything that comes after. So it, it's actually quite, for all the grandiloquence of it, uh, it, it, it's a careful enough document. Uh, plenty of ambiguity, uh, hospitable to different readings in the key things like social and so on. And it, it's actually, it, it, it is not an incendiary document as, as, as phrased. Right. Um, well now, let me just, again, I'll stay on text sure. for, for the moment. Um, but mentions gallant exiled children, gallant allies, and then goes on, but relying in the first on her own strength, she strikes in full confidence of victory. Uh, was that self-deception? No, I don't think it was self-deception. I think it was, uh, it, it may well have been in the early draft of it, when the plans were less unrealistic, as it were, than they became after the failure of the German arms and after the failure and after after Maxine's countermanding order. It may well have been that some of these phrases survived the several and successive, if you like, setbacks of the week. Uh, but confidence of victory could, I think, not have been, it, it's a defiant phrase rather than a calculated statement of expectation. And it's even if you had lost one. confidence in it, you, you likely, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't say you disown no, it and start. No, no you wouldn't. You know, no, no, it's no. not if you're going ahead with the rising. Itself. No, exactly. And, and you expected others to, 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 to stand by you. And you would not have over-egged any ideas you may have yourself that a redemptive sacrifice was the best that could be hoped for. Uh, that was not likely to mobilize anybody. So that essentially you, 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 you did have to say that, that there was a prospect of victory. 
Moving on then, the next, yeah. the next sentence is, we declare the right of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland and to the unfettered control of Irish destiny, to be sovereign and indefeasible. Now, yeah. that sounds like Connolly. It is, and, and what is also interesting there is, that is the we of the provisional government, not Mother Ireland. We move from Mother Ireland, who has been calling her people and yeah. perfecting her manhood and discipline and everything, and now it's we. Uh, we, and this is the statement of what we will do. This is essentially the declaration of rights and of the kind of society that we envisage to move into. That does sound like Connolly. And I think it is interesting, um, and if you would like to go down to Barquay and look across the river, the, the decking of Liberty Hall currently with these large banners, which are, they have, you know, some of them have icons and so on. One of the, 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 the hangings is of the proclamation. And the only two paragraphs of it that are highlighted in bold and in large print are that one and the one about the children of the nation. Which because is, of course, erroneous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, but they're the two enabling, yeah. they're the two enabling yeah. sentences for political and for social agitation and setting new benchmarks since then. But the, the one about the, the, un, the, the there's the phrase about uh, the, the, the we, uh, the unfettered control and so on. Um, I think that there is a sense in which they do not use the words private property and the public interest, for example. They say the ownership of, the Ireland, ownership of Ireland and the unfettered control of des Irish destinies. Yes, destinies. Yeah. The unfettered control of destinies. That is our future development, whatever it may be, mm. and whatever the people may decide, yeah. under whatever dispensation, either of property or of rights or of collective responsibility, whatever that will be. But of the ownership of Ireland is actually more a political statement of sovereignty than a statement of collectivist nationalization of anything. Yeah. Uh, 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 and I think that is, so if you take it in context, the ownership of Ireland is the Ireland her own idea. And uh, there is a very scrupulous avoidance of what might be divisive, of what might seem like um, uh, socially dangerous talking about. There, for example, if you look at anything that came after that, that was the democratic program of the first start, much more explicit about what resources and what is subjected to the public deed and where private property comes in and are very explicit. And that is extremely tight, uh, extremely careful, it's a cautious formulation, uh, which opens the possibility of different readings. Is it a Republican document? Well, it's a Republican document in the sense that it, it, uh, it announces the Republic as a form of government, and it's Republic in that sense, and, and, and that was to be of, of great significance because it set the benchmark for what happens, including the difficulties of not being able to realize it, or the incompleteness of it, or, or its territorial remit, all of these things. Uh, the Republic was set down as, what was it, I will live under no other law, wasn't it, you mean? That it became very difficult to withdraw from the Republic as proclaimed when it was bought in blood. But it was Republican also in the sense that uh, it did actually uh, foreground uh, democratic, as we shall see uh, as you go through the rest of it. I mean, the, the, the pending, the provisional government is there only pending a National Assembly elected by the suffrages of men and women. And women. And women. So it, it has, it has so a very- So three times there. Yeah, it does, yeah. And but women's no, suffrage was then a contested issue. It was. Very yeah, much yeah, so, it so, was, so yeah. that it was ad advanced in, on that front. Yeah. But, but yes, yeah, you are to go back to answer your question, yes, it is a Republican, a, Republi a, a Republican document, both in the proclamation of the form of government to which they're uh, de dedicated, 
and also in the provisions, I mean, religious freedom and so on. What I'm saying is, is the way that it's phrased is cautious and reassuring rather than incendiary. It does not say separation of church and state. Secular is not in it. There are all sorts of, of Republican, French Republican vocabulary that are not there. So there are echoes, of course, of France and America. Yes, it also is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, there's one other textual point before opening mm. this out to a more general debate. In every generation, the Irish people have asserted their right to national freedom and sovereignty. Six times during the past 300 years, they have asserted it in arms. Now, is Pierce, Pierce was on already on record as, as critical. Um, I think his phrase was the mean and shameful failure of the previous generation, the late 19th century, to have any rising. Yeah. So he's, he's spinning here, is he a bit? Yes, uh, well, there are two things uh, involved. First of all, the assertion that in every generation is simply a, a rhetorical flourish that has no historical meaning other than that there is a, a long record of assertions uh, of, uh, of Irish interests, but you couldn't say that it was specifically with a, a, a political objective of sovereignty as understood in the modern period in mind. On the six times and so on, running from 1641 upwards, there are two things about that. I'll, I do, I'll deal with that first before I talk about the, the idea of the shame of the previous generation having let the baton drop, and it's now important for Pierce and Lewis to, 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 to do it right. Um, the, the version of Irish history that's encapsulated in that was not unique to Pierce or indeed to the Republicans. Um, the story of Ireland, as it were, the, the Sullivan story of Ireland, or indeed the older historiography of Gaelic writing, which went from Geoffrey Keating up through Gaelic poetry of the 18th century and so on, which had a long recital of uh, the Irish and the foreigner. In other words, this kind of binary thing, the Irish and the foreigner. Now, at any given time, the complexity of whose interests were at stake here in factionalism had to be ironed out in order to, pre to present it in these binary terms. But it did actually stick as a, as a, as a narrative that Ireland had been shortchanged since the coming of the Normans and, and so on, and that there was a continuous, if you like, sentiment of resistance to it and of refusal to, to see its legitimacy, and put it no stronger than that. And that that essentially, it continued, mediated through poets, mediated in the worst of circumstances. Now, when you come to actual uh, military campaign, 1641 is probably as good a time as any. He, could, he might well have picked Kinsale, but 1641 at the start, say, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a royal and a religious issue. So it's 1689 to 91. But it does call forth versions of the conflict of a them and the us, which are serviceable for the making of a national myth of continuous resistance. And when he rolls it in then, of course, to 1798, he's on safer ground. And however minor Emma's Rebellion may have been, and however utterly minor 1848 may have been, they at least had enough on record to suggest that they were attempting to establish an Irish world, and of course, the proceedings of 57. His feeling about the previous generation and the, the terrible shame of it not happening uh, is also caught up in a couple of other phrases. For example, when he moved to the Hermitage, he became very, very haunted by Emmet's ghost. And Pierce keeps on saying that it is the shame, Dublin's shame, in not coming out with Emmet in particular, has to be healed. That essentially, and that is what 1960 does. 
it feels the shame of having let Emmet down because Emmet is, is the Dublin rebel. Mm. And Pierce's her hermitage uh, experience with the ghosts and the shades and Emmet in particular is a powerful one. And he never, it never quite leaves him. Uh, and so the, this notion the previous generation had, had, had let it slip. You do find that among much less, if you like, um, flamboyant and, 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 and colourful language people. If you remember y your dear friend and, and a, 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 a very, very, very important man in, our, in, in the lives of modern Ireland, Gareth Fitzgerald, writing in 1966 about the generation, saying that if they had not, that Ireland might well, the sense of Irishness might well have vanished when his justification in 66 in that controversy with Cruz O'Brien. And that generation of his fathers, uh, they had a sense, rightly or wrongly, many of them, that somehow or other the, the essence of Irishness uh, was leaching away and that therefore something heroic was required, something, something, uh, something a surcheth of Irishness was required. Now, Pierce carried that right into the revolutionary moment, that the revolutionary moment was what was required in order to stop that leeching away. Uh, Hyde had it with the de-anglicization and so on. But Pierce's carrying of this into the moment, the fateful moment at which this generation needs to assert itself. It's to keep faith with the dead generation. He is the one that is most obsessed with that sense of continuity and apostolic succession for those who are, if you like, uh, uh, containing Irish people. Yeah. I want to move on yeah. then to one, before mm. opening it up, one textual point, and you make, mm. you make uh, the argument that it is one of these phrases that has been so well mm. known and it's on Liberty Hall. Mm. Um, and of course it doesn't apply to what most people think it applies to. Um, because the text, uh, uh, this is the full text leading into it. The Irish Republic is entitled to and hereby claims the allegiance of every Irish man and Irish woman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens, declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts, cherishing all of the children of the nation equally. Now this is the paragraph which is misread mm. and misunderstood and it's actually a it's an answer to the Ulster Covenant and it's a reference to the Ulster Protestants. It is, yeah. uh, because it says cherishing all of the children of the nation equally, the context, it goes on, oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government which has divided a minority from the majority in the past. Mm. Um, now, he must also, uh, those writing this rather and signing it, must also have known that the very rising itself would not make, I mean, it entrenched it, the, the not the probability, the inevitability of partition, mm -hmm. which was already a possibility, if not a probability, but it was now inevitable after the rising. Um, so aside, so there are two issues here. One is th the misreading of it ever since, not ever since, no. but consistently in, in recent decades. But before that, this was an appeal to put it on the record yeah. that they were in and ought to be in and ought to see the, mm -hmm. see the error of their ways. Yes, but it's only one of many misreadings. Um, the, the notion that false consciousness, or more particularly that uh, with fair dealing and come in with us and we'll all make a better place together. Uh, the very announcement of a republic, the proclamation of a republic at that time, this wasn't 1791, the announcement of a republic effectively where the key 
funding was loyalty to the crown, the king, uh, for the Ulster Unionists in particular. The, the notion that somehow a republic as proclaimed would be a hospitable place for those whose, whose very nature at this stage was, was hanging on loyalty to the crown, even at, to defy parliament. Uh, uh, this was the key thing. They were king's men. They were, they were, they were king's men. Uh, it is a misreading. But uh, he wasn't the only one. Uh, I'm always struck by, I mean, Pierce had no northern connections directly. Or MacNeil was from the glens of Antrim. Roger Casement was reared up there. And both of those, uh, MacNeil, the north began, it's a wonderful thing, let us do the same, uh, as if essentially that, that was a reassuring thing of, of Ulster militancy. And Connolly had worked and there. Uh, uh, yes, Connolly had worked there indeed, and had seen it at first hand. And Connolly had, indeed had met the rawness of it in the Belfast situation, not in the more refined uh, literary circles of the glens of Antrim, the scholars and Protestant evangelists and uh, language revivalists as MacNeil and Casement had. But Casement also, uh, the, the idea that this was a promising sign and Ulster come in with us and effectively, you know, your, your, your natural uh, gifts and so on. A total misreading of the visceral nature of popular loyalism, popular Ulster unionism, uh, and indeed of the, the even the more elevated versions of it. So Pierce, uh, the, the proclamation does indeed um, misjudge, or it is, it's irrelevant essentially, because the proclamation is the counter document to the covenant. Uh, and it's no accident that afterwards, as physical, material symbols of identity, both documents hung on the walls of their respective, if you like, um, uh, zealots on both sides. Everybody who signed the covenant was zealots, given. It was mainstream. Yes, well, mainstream as well, yes, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the, everyone who signed the covenant was given a copy of it. And of course, the reprintings of the proclamation afterwards, including the sending out of the schools in 1966 as the central document, the foundation document, uh, they're both, if you like, the, the foundation documents of two, two utterly opposed versions of identity in the future. Now, to go back to your other one about the children, yes, the, the, the misreading of that, the children of the nation. The children of the nation are, as the, the, the full paragraph has it, uh, in every part and division. The children of the nation are all the children of Ireland, orange and green. Uh, it's not about age or about the, the, the uh, non-adult citizens, as it were. But it is, I think, indicative of what can happen in a document when it becomes a live document for interpretation afterwards. Uh, any more, for example, than uh, modern Americans. Uh, life, the pursuit of happiness, uh, the explication of that over the, over the generations and the decades. What does it actually mean? What, what entitlement is, is, in, is implicit or instinct in it has changed. The children is actually a misreading of what was essentially a colorful statement, a metaphor for, the, for, for all the members of the, uh, of the national community, but it has served its purpose in allowing the document to be evoked, or invoked rather, to at least raise issues about social justice, about opportunity, about education, and so on, uh, in a way that perhaps without it would be more difficult. And it's an the, the text is egalitarian anyway, so it, it would be consistent oh, uh, yes. with the misreading, yes, if you yes, like. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not a perverse reading but of the spirit of the text. It's kind of a lost battle now, yeah, isn't yeah. it? It's hard to know. Uh, as I say, uh, the, the, the text, we, we have seen the, 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 the proclamation so often that it's become almost frozen uh, over a century. Um, the one thing that is, I think, significant about it is that 
it never ceased to be the centerpiece of all commemorations of the rising because it was the most dramatic and at the same time reassuring part. It is, it, uh, there was a very nice uh, speech given by Patrick Hillary in 1966, just across the way when he opened the National Museum's exhibition. He was the education he was minister. And, he, and he, said, he said that the proclamation, as distinct from the military events and the jumble and the confusion of the week, that the, the proclamation, he said, was the, se the central moment of the whole. And it remains so. Every time, in every place, formal state occasions or small ceremonies around the country that the rising is commemorated. Whatever unease people may have had about the rising and mandates and violence and confusion and all the rest of it, the reading of the proclamation in a straightforward way and more particularly the egalitarian elements of it, uh, uh, the elements of it that talk about men and women and about the children of the nation and about rights and religious freedom, that is seen as an utterly wholesome announcement of the kind of society that is envisaged and as something that is still worth, it, wor worth working through. And it's not only for us. There's a, there's a very interesting uh, little piece in the Irish-American novelist, Joseph O'Neill, in the family history that he wrote, uh, what was it called? Blood Dark Track, I think it is, a family history, in which he uh, gives a short account of the first time he came upon the proclamation and how the emotional charge it gave him reading this and how, how important it was to him. Now, we have become, to a degree at least, uh, so, so, so inured to excitement <laughs> from documents of any kind. But it is interesting that the, the, the sonority of it and the five phrases and the high ideals of it at certain parts still resonate strongly with others and, uh, and in his home as well. I noticed that, by the way, the, the chaplain to the Defence Forces this year, he had a prayer, I think, mm. for that occasion in Easter Sunday last. Uh, in that prayer, he, I think, quite deliberately brings out the, this dimension, the correct reading of that paragraph, Children of the Nation, the Pillar. I think he, he, I think he deliberately probably brought mm. it in, and Orti was lucky enough to have a commentator who spotted it, spot it and who yes, mentioned yes, it yes. and modestly prevents me from saying it. Oh, indeed, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Who, indeed. who that commentator was, yes, but there you go. Well, we would never have guessed, John. No, we would no, <laughs> okay. No, but it is very, very... Unprompted. It's, uh, John A. Murphy <laughs> thinks this is a lost cause yes, because yes. of... And, of course, it is true that the children... There is a, there is such an honourable thing yes. to treat the children of the nation equally. Yes, yes. And so there's nothing lost in, in, in it being misread. But can I ask you then, how would you compare 1966, the, um, the, comm the commemoration then, and 2016? Um, well, of course, uh, 1966 is, 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 is on the hinge of the major shift in modern Ireland. It's the intergenerational shift. The veterans are still there. Uh, de Valera is running for election for another term. He's the Mount Rushmore figure of 1916, still around, uh, reviewing everything, turning up at everything, dignified, erect, the hat, and so on, but very much well-managed. And he harkens back to the past in the public statements he makes, that he, this is a wonderful day, and he thinks of all the great sacrifices, and please God, the day will come when we'll have or people united, which is the children of the nation and so on, uh, and the Irish language. He, 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 he reaffirms his own, if you like, baptismal vows as a, as, as a revolutionary generation nationalist. 
the mass packs a different line. The mass is already trying to see 1916 as the reorientation of patriotism and the national sense of purpose, almost in advance of John Hume. The time has gone for spilling our blood, let's spill our sweat. In other words, there's an element of that in Lavasse's speech of 1966. He anticipates Hume pretty well all the time, that now is the time for a different expression uh, of, of patriotism and of the high ideals and our best way of rededicating ourselves to the memory of these people and so on, of whom Lamas himself was one, is to make a, a better job of this country and of its economy and so on. And therefore, this again, however manipulative it may have been, the children of the nation stuff chimes well with O'Malley's free secondary education. You can immediately latch it into it, uh, even if the, the wording is pulled out of context. Uh, by the way, on that children of the nation thing, it may well be that both you and John A. and who am I to disagree with who this thing is from, the, the feel that it's a lost cause. But there is a sense in which reading it, even for all the colorful metaphor of the children of the nation, it does actually talk about pluralism or there's I, there is a pluralist commitment implicit in it. Now, it's a naive one in the 1916 context of, of ultra-unionism, but cherishing all of the children of the nation equally, meaning a variety of citizens with different uh, versions of rights, both collective and individual, that essentially working out in a democratic society what a pluralist society must look like, that, is, that phrase is potentially an enabling one for that particular kind of, of, uh, of advocacy, if people wanted it. But um, it is the case, I think, that, that, that uh, the 1966 one does represent that shift. I think it is a very decisive shift uh, where uh, the future and the agenda of economic development is Lamasse's, even though he, of course, is a, he's, he's a 17 carat signatory of the 1966. And also, the criticism that comes in from those who are criticizing the failures of the state. It gets heavily focused in 66, um, the language revival stuff, uh, the, um, some of the Joe Clark stuff about, uh, uh, and those who turned up to protest. Uh, there the, the, the Sean McDermott, the, the family and those who they were- They declined. They did indeed, who were, yeah. who, who were un irreconcilable. But by and large, what, in, what is important, I think, is the sense in which it, 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 it managed and was stage managed heavily, first years of television, in television was a powerful medium in order to create that sense of a national community, celebrating a sacrificial act, a glorious act and high ideals, humanizing the seven signatories with a series of television portraits on behalf of the provisional government. First time many of the families of these men were ever seen. The Connollys in particular made a huge impression. You'll remember it and I'm sure others here will. Um, the Connolly children made their father more human than anybody had imagined. And Connolly was the reputation, I think, which more than any of the others was boosted in 66, um, rather than Pierce. Uh, but it was, it was transitional. And I, I think that, that by now, it is historicized. We have historicized, after a century, we have historicized 1916 um, in every way. Uh, th there has been relatively little uh, dissent in the sense of uh, caviling at unfinished business or anything incendiary, um, probably because the Northern peace process had bedded down sufficiently, which was not the case in 91 or indeed up to the end of the 90s. But already by 2006, it was clear that 1916 was manageable as part of the national memory. It no longer carried an obligation for anything else. 
and that we could see it as an historical episode in its own right. And historians played a big part in that. And I also think 2015, uh, those of you here, 2015, the dress rehearsal that was in O'Connell Street w was quite interesting uh, in media terms. Uh, to have a dress rehearsal, to see how would it go, and, and close the street, have people dressed up in Edwardian garb. Little bit of um, Joyce's The Dead Meets Antiques Roadshow, <laughs> where you have, bring in your medals, bring in your medals, and we'll tell you their yeah. provenance. Yeah. Historians on booth one, yeah. uh, archivists on booth two, a mm. uh, little bit of music, play John McCormack, slightly scratchy, the dear dead days beyond yeah, recall. Yeah, yeah. There was a very deliberate dress rehearsal to suitably histori historicize it as an Edwardian episode which was hugely engrossing and we can festivalize it for a full year. And we have. We have festivalized it for a year. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, I'm going to throw this open to the audience, but just a, a little footnote before we do that. W another point about Le Mans in 1966 yes. is he also made a speech at King's End yes. in which he praised the Irishmen who were at the Somme and yes. at the First World War. Um, now, De Valera had said something along those lines which is not often mm remembered, in fact not remembered, but he, there is something on the Dáil record, I can't give you a date on it now, but Le Mans is generally credited, but that was a more public speech yes. and he drew a lot of attention to it. Can I ask people from the audience now if they, because we've gone through the text very closely, I think, um, but yes. I think you've just turned it off. Mm -hmm. oh, do, are you? Question, uh, just to come back to the question about the, 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 the Gael Gant, the absence of, mm. uh, of Irish from the, from the text. Do you think the absence of Irish gave an out to politicians and so on over the succeeding generations and led to the situation that, well, people, including myself, would believe that we have this lip service towards the Irish language. And I suppose just in, in addition to that then, on the other hand, if Irish had featured prominently in the, in the text, would it have made a difference? Um. I'd be less uh, concerned about his featuring in the text uh, than about an understanding by the incoming elite as to what exactly was, was, was required. In other words, was it a stabilization of a language minority from a language situation where it had been shrinking for a long time and where there were huge, huge problems, uh, not just in, in terms of education, but the great hectare of poor communities and so on. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't fret too much about about the, 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 the uh, about the fact that, that uh, it wasn't in the proclamation. Uh, Irish versions of the proclamation translations were done very quickly, in fact, and were then circulated for those who wanted to be an Irish in a bilingual society should be able to translate things easily, going one way or the other. I think the bigger issue is: did the incoming regime in the 1920s? particularly after the Civil War, uh, did they have a clear idea of what it was, what the language question, as it were, was? And I think my, my answer to that, without wandering too far away from the text now, my, 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 my answer to that would be that a cohort had thought about it and were genuinely exercised about the fact that a long period of language, uh, uh, language shift or language change looked as if it was irreversible and that the cultural loss would be significant, inestimable. Not all, 
the notion that, uh, and remember those who were, Ernest Lyle is probably mm -hmm. the, the, was easily the most uh, consistent. Um, Dick Mulcahy to an extent. Um, notwithstanding his, 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 his really distinguished background in uh, the Gaelic League, Owen McNeill would not have been seen as being a man pushing heavily on a revivalist policy issue, even if an interior in education in 1920. But the, the, the nature of the state, I mean, the, the full apparatus of the civil service, the full apparatus of, of power that, that essentially had to make a decision on this, and the attitude towards a, a grail peculiarity, which was both in socioeconomic and in linguistic terms, uh, uh, requiring massive stabilization, which even the congested district boards or any linguistic obligation had found it difficult to do more than cope on. It, it was, it was mad. And I think, if I were to be honest, that the people I would look to to see how they try, I wouldn't look at politicians at all. I looked to people like uh, you, uh, an, 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 a mutual friend of ours, John, Leon O'Brien, a historian, who, whose, whose life through the history of that period is essentially well worth looking at. A total language revivalist who became a loyal civil servant of the Free State, who continued to write in Irish but had changing views upon policy and on prospects and what objectives should have been, and who lived a long enough life to be able to look back calmly and dispassionately but without rancor on mistakes made and things done. I don't think the language of the proclamation is a decisive variable in what happens afterwards. By the way, on just on 1916 and, and television, mm -hmm. the minutes of the, of the RT authority, with Kieran Rudy present, mm -hmm. said that the emphasis should be not on an analytical approach to the writing, but on more of a ce celebration, ce celebration yeah. which I must say shocked me watching, because I knew Moody very well, and it surprised, it surprised me. Yes. Yes. Tommy Graham, uh, History Iron Magazine. Um, Garold, could you comment on the use, come back to the text again, the use of the word usurpation? Mm. And I, I'm, I'm raising this in relation to the, you know, the, the, the ongoing critique you know, that, that the you know, 1916 represented you know, unmandated violence. Mm -hmm. the, the long usurpation of that right by a foreign people and government has not extinguished the right, nor can it ever be extinguished except by the destruction of the Irish people. Well, uh, firstly, I mean, the usurpation of it, you could have said suppression, or you, there, there are a whole series of other uh, ways of putting it. Uh, but I, I know what you're driving at, Tommy, that usurpation would, would say that the undoing of usurpation was, was a, a right in itself. Uh, I'm not altogether sure that I would read it or parse it quite as finely or as legalistically as that. Uh, us usurpation has a nice rhetorical ring to it in the sentence as well. Um, essentially, the fact that that right has been uh, suppressed, taken, refused or denied over the centuries did not extinguish it, nor could it ever. And then the back to the indomitable Irishry one, the one where every generation of Irish have done this. If, if you reach that, you reach the stage where 
it cannot be extinguished until there are no further generations of Irish people around. So that is the extirpation one. Uh, I'm not sure that usurpation makes a whole lot of difference, but I'm open to persuasion and to, to correction that it makes a whole lot of difference to the naughty issue of unmandated use of violence. In other words, the actual, the Ireland summons the provisional government as she summons her people in the name of God and of the dead generations. That's the mandate that it has. Uh, there is no reference whatever in that document to current circumstances. It doesn't say a word about, uh, we don't believe that home rule is gonna happen. We don't think home rule is adequate. We have been fooled before, we're not going to be fooled again. There isn't a single topical, topical reference to the home rule crisis of 1912 to 16 in that document. It utterly ignores the current uh, controversies and the toings and froings. It merely invokes the ancestral instinct uh, for self-determination, and there the difference is freedom, Irish freedom, self-determination, not to be interfered with or usurped. So it's that old cog of agree, let us look after our own business. And that, is again, is, is the, the, the overarching attitude which allows the naivety on the north, that if, and de Valera afterwards, as you know, John, you know, the else has written as much about it, de Valera's idea that we will allow the north to have as much as they could possibly have and more, uh, provided that they are part of the national family and that we're looking after our own business, they're looking after their portion of it in accordance with so on. So there is, there is that thing all the time. And usurpation fits that. I'm not sure it's quite as legalistically so, but the invocation of the ancestral instinct for self-determination and not being put upon by a powerful neighbor is what gives the mandate, not any critique of the current circumstances or crisis not 1912, not the UPF, not home rule already. They're not mentioned. Yes. Um, yeah, just to go back to the question of our uh, 1966 commemorations and 2016. Sorry, my name's Peter Duffy and I'm not aligned to any particular group, independent or otherwise. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, <Please>. Just... <laughs> In relation to 66, there's, you know, I detect a strong sense of looking at it as a very proto or ultra-nationalist sort of commemoration. And what I detect and from what you said is that the truth, you know, was much more complicated. It was a traditional time, it was a hinge. There was people who were still alive, very much directly connected, uh, involved in 1916. And so things were more raw and sensitive to a degree, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to 100 years later, which was a different context. Mm -hmm. Um, also, in '66, the Garden of Remembrance mm -hmm. was created, and there seems to have been a lot of other activities as well that are not noted. Yet in 2016, it, there seems to be that, that 1966 was, was, you know, quite nationalistic view, and also then the 16, you know, in the, in the say the, the rebellion um, uh, TV series, um, but also other um, comments uh, in relation to it. And I, I perceive also the lack of much focus on the border and partition and the situation of a nationalist minority, both you know, uh, after independence, and that that was largely um, ignored, um, or to a great degree, even as you rightly say, in post-peace um, agreement uh, context. Um, so what's generally said is that you know, whatever commemoration, it's a reflection 
of the people who are commemorating it or going oh yeah. back. What would you say is the, how does it reflect on today's um, society, how we are, how it has been commemorated? Uh, well, I, I, I recap really with you. I think that the, the sense of an historical event which essentially is available, available now both for inquiry, serious inquiry for those who are intent upon it, um, marketing as a national event to be marked. Um, what was it? Um, the, the, the music, the contemporary, the living, the, what was it, the, the RT series? Li living the composers, composers. Oh, yes, yeah, L living the century. Living, the yes, uh, yeah, but, but again, in other words, you, you, you see the century as a span within which you could reflect on anything you like, not just on the rebellion and what it means for us now, but on looking back on the century, another Ireland, another time, interesting people, interesting things, ideas, have they anything to say to us? And if so, do we have to translate the language in which they had uh, their ideals and their ambitions into a contemporary idiom? Uh, but there, the idea that they have left a responsibility for us to actually complete literally anything from reunification to anything else for that, that seems to uh, have essentially been settled, that, that the responsibilities as the, as the proclamation said, we're relying principally on your own efforts. In other words, that it is for every generation to, to make its terms of what it, it needs to do and looking to the past. I, I think that 1966, by the way, if I may be permitted to say so, there are two or three very good books that have looked at the commemoration of 66 in detail and that do actually give an idea of the complexity and contradictions of it. There's a collection of essays that Mary Daly and um, Margaret O'Callaghan edited uh, that is out for a few years. Uh, there's a very fine book by Roisin Higgins and there's a fine book by Mark McCarthy uh, and there are one or two others as well. So, so the, the actual excavation from the archives, including the material that John uh, is familiar with, uh, of what actually was going on, what was intended in 66 and what actually occurred. The difficulty of 66, of course, is that the North explodes within a few years in the late 60s and it puts a totally different complexion and raises a totally new set of both anxieties and uh, difficulties in coming to terms, not just with 1916, but with 1966. Uh, and it, 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 it immediately re, re, reshapes the way in which it's talked about, handled, retreated from, and so on. Uh, and that happened, that continued for about 30 years, leading to the mid-1990s. John mentioned uh, Labasse's reference in 66 to the Psalms. Um, it is interesting that it took another 30 years by and large, now it's not, that's not a, th there are exceptions in the intervening period. It took another 30 years before the revisiting of Irish participation in the First World War becomes part of the general public discourse. Um, it probably begins, I think, with um, when John Bruton was Taoiseach. It, then it, it moves then into other fictionalized accounts, Sebastian Barry's work later, McGuinness's Martin, the Sons of Ulster, until by the turn of the century, uh, Bertie Hearn and the, the inclusiveness agenda that comes with parity of esteem and so on. Um, but in 66 yes. also FX Martin had mm. that marvelous article uh, in which mm. he was saying, the, which he coined the phrase national amnesia. 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 Yes, there were 16 Irishmen in the, in the Great War for every one in the GPO. Mm -hmm. and it did.
interviews with Deborah Douglas, the biologist, and the researchers, the guide on today, was a Dr. Dixon, who had been a student in the College of Surgeons and who had gone to Rishon as a stretcher bearer. And it was shown, um, it, the title was dot, 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 and in the morning. And in the morning, yes. We shall remember yeah. them. So it, it <laughs> was, and it subsequently won a few prizes. And thank you for that. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, yes. Just here. The microphone is coming, yeah. Liam Barron, a uh, former student and friend of Darrell <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just, uh, there had been a good deal of discussion and, and, and reflection uh, in the various debates and so on about the kind of state that emerged. I, I don't know, John, if this is within the, uh, the confines of what you're letting me know, if it's not. Yeah, we don't um, <laughs> as the kind of state that emerged and how far short it fell of the high I ideals expressed in the proclamation. And uh, one school of thought would say that um, there was really only one big winner here, and that that was the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland, and that what we got was far from unfettered control, that we got a very fettered control. And uh, I would like to hear Gerald's opinion, but also yours, John, because I seem to recall that you produced a fairly very significant study of, of the manner in which a state was fashioned here in the South, a confessional state, which was at almost in parallel with what was happening north of the border. End of question. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think that um, in his uh, introduction to uh, Vivid Faces, the, the study of the revolutionary generation that Roy Foster, sparkling books, uh, published, he spoke about the new historiographies and things that we are we are beginning to look more at paradox and nuance and to look at revolutions from the point of view of what didn't change as much as what changed and that that has been a feature of recent writing and I think um, that had become apparent before now uh, I, I, I don't think the, the, the 1916 rising generated a cohort utterly new cohort of leadership that was actually going to seek to implement you know, virtually all of this. The, 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 the idealism, the critiquing of the confessional state in the making, that was already there before 1916. I mean, essentially, the key elements of a, a relatively conservative, pretty cautious uh, society, strongly clericalist in terms of its social mores and so on, that was already well embedded. The Land Act had effectively created a farmer owner class with a very strong conservative view. Um, the huge uh, increase in the apparatus of the Catholic Church, not just in straightforward pastoral care, but in the other areas, education, social care, and so on and so forth. It had, a, it had the embryonic infrastructure of a state ready and waiting. Now, the idea that that was going to be displaced by the week in Dublin in 1916 w was never going to happen. The real question was how much of the, uh, of, of the agenda of, for want of a better word, liberation, individual freedoms uh, and so on, how much of that would survive or how much of it would essentially be tamed very quickly. The sensitive areas 
women would be the obvious one. The, 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 the putting back women into the domestic sphere bit by bit, closing off of opportunities for women, the disapproval, both formal and indeed legislative over time, was probably the most, is the most striking now. It may well be because our, our sensitivity now to, to, to the gender issue is, is higher than it was at any time. But looking back on it, that is very striking. Uh, the putting, it, putting the lid back on a very, very lively cohort of advocates for women's rights and human rights in the generation leading up, not just suffrage, but other things as well. Uh, likewise, <coughs> the, the censorship, and more particularly, the, the utterly disproportionate obsession with sexual conformity, as distinct from other aspects of Catholic Jewish thinking. The, the obsessive uh, concern with uh, appropriate behavior, and with, with, with sex in particular, is, is something that is absolutely striking. And once the new state is established, it's copper fast indeed. Um, some of this has to do with the fact that many of the new leaders, um, and certainly the new elites across the board, uh, shared that view themselves, uh, whether they were their clergy. Um, and also, we must say that one of the things that facilitated it over time is the continuing emigration. Emigration facilitated the conservative society those who might be expected through their, their own experience and through their social standing and through their age and impatience to challenge simply exited. The, the old choice between voice and exit. In Ireland, you had a disproportionate election for exit rather than for voice, and it was easy to fight on the voices, whether they were O'Quailoin or Grawlton or Father O'Donnell or anybody else. They were licensed to be dissenters, but they, didn't dis they, they never unsettled commanding heights of behavior. And I think that is the case. The northern state is a different matter and could be worked for another night. Mm. John, you, you, yeah. you might well, <laughs> I you've been asked as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I sometimes think that it, you, you see patterns after. This has happened to me a couple of times, but I've just finished a book, which is Ireland in, in this century from 1916, but that's just document um, from anthology. But the sexual repression is certainly a very big factor, and the issue of birth control alone comes into the book, say, seven or eight times. Common early expresses, well, Shaw, in his uh, essay in The Irish Statesman, is acting on censorship, is actually talking about the Censorship Act, which first came in to keep Mary Stokes out of print in Ireland, so she was to be censored. But there's a very telling argument, and it was in this uh, manuscript room in this library that I found the original, but there was a very odd, not, not odd, uh, that's unfair, but there was an unlikely, to put it that way, uh, follower of de Valera, Irish press reader, um, who is somebody whose diaries are, are here, and they, of course there are, there are very many of them. Uh, on, I won't say unfortunately, but it takes a long time to go through them. But the... The Irish press in 1931 is only about 10 weeks old, and it has an article on page one talking about the Sunday Times of the previous day. It's a Monday edition of the Irish press. And the Sunday Times had an article on birth control, and the Irish press attacked it for its animalism and its, what was the other word, the, the, the paganism and animalism of this particular article. And it's 
Dorothy McCarthy is one of those who takes umbrage at this and is shocked and horrified by it. But she would have known Frank Gallagher, who's the editor of the Irish Press, but she wouldn't have written to him. I mean, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I know it from reading their relationship and their friendship through letters and so on, and reading the Irish Press letters column, where such material was not published. So the, uh, the, the women who wanted to have a voice had it privately, in, in, in a diary format, rather than in uh, the public domain. And again, this happened to me once again, when I had finished a book on, on RTE, before I realized when I was talking about it in one of the spaces, that if you take the issue of contraception or birth control in the 1970s, that changed on television from the question in 1970, is it a sin, to about two or three years later, is it a crime, to two or three years later, is it not a civil right? Now that is rapid. So that was the essential question, and it changed in those 10 years. And the reason was that the people who were running that, the bishops, the doctors, the judges, and the politicians, were all men. And women, as you look at the census of 1971 and 61, you can see it happening already. If you look at the date of, sorry, the, yes, the date of birth after marriage of the first child, you can see that contraception was the move. And so women were making, we, they were making medical history. We had the most irregular cycles that the pill was available, and women were on the pill for irregular. It was an agreed hypocrisy. We're very good at agreed hypocrisy in Ireland. We're, we're top Olympic champions. Uh, but it's just a way of working. I mean, Charlie Hohu's Irish solution to an Irish problem, that was another agreed hypocrisy. Everybody knew Charlie's own record in this department. I mean, he was the most unlikely. Uh, marriage only and all that. But to come back to one other point about the church, in, say, uh, in that experience about the church, there is this to be said, that in the 19th century and right up to the 20th century, the church, first of all, they were organizers politically. They were usually on the platform and deciding which candidate might come in. And they were providing, as we still have the residue of this, the education when the, when the British government, which is here, was not providing sufficient education or health services, the church, for their own reasons as well, I admit, but they were providing a health service and to some extent a social services through charities. And so it, it was quite hard for some of those bishops and clerics to let go, l particularly when they were now, we now had our, our own show, as it were. So it, it, it isn't that surprising that they moved in, but by golly, they moved in. And O'Fuelon said it to me once, and I, I was very charmed and amused by it. I'm sure he said it many, many times. I thought I was hearing it for the first time. I had my microphone with me, so that was, that was good. But he said, about all the censorship, and he said, and all this business about occasions of sin, and he added a warning that could have been made of life itself. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes. Sorry, somebody here. Yes. I don't know the uh, ideals of the proclamation were treated by the leaders afterwards pious inspirations, mere pious inspirations. Are you saying they're pious Well, yeah, I wouldn't say pious aspirations. I think th 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 they were quoted selectively, and they were quoted uh, as affirmations, a rededication, as it were, to high ideals. Uh, I don't think anybody claimed that they were ever, like, uh, that they had worked through the agenda. But it is the case that they were invoked regularly 
and selectively. I mentioned the, the, the Hall. I don't think that, that even John will find a later politician uh, honing in on our gallant allies in Europe. <laughs> As a, phrase, yes, well, as a phrase to keep using. Yes. Even right. now, post-Brexit. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Take a last question mm. here. Yes. Gallant yeah. um, uh, allies in Europe, do you not think that they were ensuring there that they would be ex executed? By using that, I, I certainly uh, it may well be. I, I don't think that they needed yeah. to ensure it. I think if you if you if you rise in rebellion, well, they were uh, showing. Oh yes, I I, I basically yes, I, I think you're right that it, it pretty well copper passed it. And and the notion that um, uh, Ronan Fanning has written very well on this, the idea that the the executions afterwards, uh, the ch shift in public opinion, that uh, if they had executed a dozen the morning after in one go as a reprisal for the destruction and the thing of it and uh, the, sh the shot it, it, it's questionable what public mood might have been it took time but the, the dribbling out of it allowed a sense of uh, beginning with unease then as the public became aware of or knowledge rather about the character of the men and so on and a cult of, of, of not so much worship but a cult of, of, of sympathy for their ideals and for their, their purity of purpose and so on, uh, began to that it essentially that the, 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 the British the, the British way of execution was a disaster. But if you're looking at it from the point of view of military commander being brought in for rebellion at the heart of the state at a time of war, when things are going very very difficult, and more particularly as you say, a, gr a group who actually talk about the, the enemy as being the gallant allies and casement caught red-handed. Um, it's very difficult to see how anything other than execution uh, would have been contemplated uh, at all. Uh, but the, yeah, the, the issue is how was it done and more particularly how the public responded to it. And you're right about, I think mm. you're on to something because there's generally uh, now agreement that Pierce's letter to his mother, mm -hmm. which includes the phrase about, uh, forgotten, this isn't quite gallant allies, but he mentions the German aid. On page one, his PS is actually at the top of the letter. Yes, well, yes. He then gives this letter to a British soldier to post to his mother, and she do he doesn't post it. But I think, I think probably here, Pierce knew what would happen to the letter, and that was the cornerstone of his court-martial and secured his execution, and as you might say, secured his martyrdom, which I think in his case was particularly something he wanted. But it's all very uh, interesting and all, Charles, yeah. Well, it wouldn't have been possible to execute Commander the defense of the railway mm -hmm. without, uh, it was only the helping of the enemy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah. it's interesting if you read through the trials, how much the defense was very often, we weren't trying to uh, help the enemy mm -hmm. because that was the one defense they could raise. And if they succeeded in establishing that, they couldn't be executed. Yes. And if you like, the seven people who signed the proclamation had clearly said they were helping mm -hmm. the enemy. Yes. But it was a problem with the other things. Is there was a kind of strange legalism in the way it was approached by the British authorities. They didn't want to depend on 
it couldn't depend on martial law once the fighting was over. It was only repelling force by force. So they were driven back on this thing. But why they said it was that uh, it was too little Thank you very much, Charles, for that. And remind me, Charles, that there's a, there's a very, very good book, isn't there, by a barrister? Yes, yes. he's, um, he's uh, Sean Enright. Yes. He's a judge. Yes. Uh, he's, yeah. he's written very well. I think Robert Marshall has. And, of course, the role of uh, Wiley, the prosecuting counsel, was really a sort of hero's failure because he was trying to see that there were fair trials. And I'm sure he helped to accuse when the Lord Chancellor, then Avery or Lord Campbell, refused to have defence counsel. He, he spoke to the defence people beforehand. And that's, of course, why this Constance Markovitch thing is. is she obviously whined to him in the pre-trial uh, uh, talk, because if you read the account of her trial, uh, there's nothing like that. Yeah. But he, he certainly had a very honourable role, I think, in that. He was also among the very many books that Lone O'Brien, W.E. Uh, Wiley and the Irish Revolution, which is another book which could be reprinted. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I would like to thank on your behalf, Geroid O'Toohig, for his splendid um, contribution this evening and for allowing us to go in quite a detailed way through the, the sort of textual, um, important textual matter of the, um, of the proclamation and so I'm most grateful to Roy. Thank you very much. Thank you John. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Oh. Oh, thank you very much. Lovely. Thank you John very much. Thank you very much. Yeah.